I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's start here where I think the answer begins for everything and everybody in the place of acknowledgement. Indigenous peoples in this country have taught me the most about what acknowledgement truly means. So everything that I've created for you happened here on Treaty 7 land, which is now known as the center part of the province of Alberta. It is home to the Blackfoot Confederacy, made up of the Siksika, the Kainai, the Pikani, the Tatina First Nation, the Stony Nakoda First Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. It is always my honor, my privilege mostly, to raise my babies on this land where so much sacrifice was made and to build a community, invite a community in, talk about hard things as we together learn and unlearn about the most important things that we were never meant to do any of this alone. Welcome back and welcome in, amazing humans. This is the Everyone Comes From Somewhere podcast. I'm Dr. Jody Carrington, and in this episode, oh, I'm so excited to talk to you about stories. And uh, that was the whole premise uh, for this podcast is um, context. Context is a prerequisite for empathy. Where we come from, oh, man, we don't ask that question nearly enough. We always ask what's wrong with you not what happened to you. And today, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my story. And I'm going to try and answer uh, the questions that I I want to ask every guest. And so I thought it only fair that I try to answer my own questions, which I'm not I'm already not happy about. So I feel like that's probably important to reflect on at some point. But anyway, um, I think there's got to be such a premise around this telling stories thing. I mean, it, it's an ancient spiritual practice. It's a tool for communication, uh, a way of sort of passing on our experiences. Okay. Before we could, you know, read or write, we had this ability to sort of tell stories. And there's this ancient idea of, you know, sitting around campfires or at bedtime and telling experiences of the day because the human brain has, it's been on a slower evolutionary uh, trajectory than technological advances have been uh, allowing us to even process. And so um, our brains respond to content by looking for story. That's how they always have to make sense out of the experience. And so no matter how fast technology can assist um, sort of in the processing of data, uh, the meaning starts in the brain. And so stories sort of act as the vehicles that by stimulating neural pathways trigger our imagination. And we start to group those similar stories together. And we sort of become participants of the narrative. And I think that it, it's sort of hard when you want to tell a story because everybody has their own and their own version of their story. And often we're involved in everybody else's 
stories to some degree. So what's ours to tell, what's not ours to tell, um, I think is always a, a pretty big question. But I, my hope is in every single episode that I get a guest on um, is to ask this question, you know, everyone comes from somewhere. So tell me where you came from. And what I want you to listen to over the episodes is the different takes that people have on that question. You know, some people start, you know, from a very sort of genetic perspective. Some people talk, you know, from a cultural perspective or uh, a spiritual perspective. And I think that it is such a process that I'm drawn to as a psychologist because most often my work as a therapist is getting your perception of your story at the time in which it was embedded in your body and to challenge it, to help it grow. This is so true in trauma. You know, some people sort of in that moment, their body has encoded something in terror that when we unpack it in a place of calm, when our neurodevelopmental system is calm, we can put it back in a different place. Okay. So if you, if you learn something at age three, if you experience something at age six or age 17, um, and it stays stuck in there because you've never had a place to, to lay it out on the table or try it on for size with somebody else. Um, the whole purpose of therapy is to be able to reintegrate that experience, um, in a different place, maybe when your body is in a safer place. And I, that's what I love so much about therapy. And I want to start with this idea of, you know, what is a piece of my story? Well, I mean, I, it's changed through the years, uh, obviously, as all of us do. And I think there's some facts that maybe don't change, but the perception around those things or our understandings of how our parents, our caregivers showed up in those moments um, really matter. And uh, I think that um, there's something always about... Um, for me about connection and reconnection and the later in my life, when I learned this part of the story, it changed everything for me. So if somebody were to ask me, uh, where do you come from? I always say Viking, Alberta, Canada. And this is the little small farming town that I grew up in that I loved and hated all at the same time. White, straight, able-bodied, privileged household. That's what I grew up in. And I never knew, I mean, this is a definition of white privilege, right? You don't know you have it because it's, that's the privilege um, because you don't need to. And it was for all intents and purposes, a pretty safe, uh, connected childhood. There was a big story there though, that I didn't know anything about until I was in my late thirties. Um, and I, I think there's so many pieces of this that, that are, you know, that, that now that I know this next piece, um, I maybe remember differently, but I remember always being the funny one. I was born as the oldest, as I knew it, the oldest child in our family and, um, kind of chunky, always the one that could make people laugh. Like I was, I remember being the funniest fucking deal at any of our family functionings. I'm the oldest of, uh, 12 grandkids. And I would be the one that could make everybody laugh. And if somebody was struggling, I, I, like, no problem, I got it. No problem, okay? And here's what I didn't know. I didn't know that I actually wasn't the oldest grandchildren child. So my parents, who were high school sweethearts, uh, they got pregnant in their teens. And 
there was some time before my mom knew she was carrying a baby. Pregnancy tests were not a thing. Um, you had to go to the doctor to get that confirmed. Um, but this young woman, my mom, she was wildly committed to not disappointing her hardworking religious parents. I mean, I, my dad's parents and my mom's parents grew up within miles of each other. And once they discovered that they were pregnant, um, this was something they both hid and really were scared about, right? There was also such a, a heavy religious component that not only was, you know, terminating the pregnancy not an option, I don't know, um, they would even say they didn't, they wouldn't have known how to go about that. Um, what they did figure out, or I don't know how this really even happened, um, what they did figure out is that there was a home for unwed mothers. And my father orchestrated this experience where he... Uh, got my mom there safely. So they would have borrowed somebody's car. I think it was a buddy's car. And they drove down with this pretense story that my mom um, was taking a summer job or she was taking a job out of the province. And there was very little phones and communication. So everybody just trusted that this was the truth. She even stood in my aunt's wedding at, she believed she was six months pregnant and bound her belly um, as a bridesmaid so that the rest of the crew wouldn't know that she was having a baby. And she goes to this place in the final two months of her pregnancy by herself. My dad drops her off, leaves her. And um, she navigates that. She talks about the social workers and the nuns um, and the other women that, that she met in this process. Um, she you know, I've known about this for over 10 years now and we spoke very little about it to this yet. I mean, how lonely it was, how scary it was, how much she loved this baby that she knew she wasn't going to get to, um, sort of watch grow up. And she talked, she's talked a lot about what it meant to, um, give birth to the child and how um, the nuns in the moment really didn't want her to see the baby and how she was screaming um, and asking because she heard somebody say that that the baby, it was a girl, uh, her head was misshapen um, because of the birth. And, and so she was really scared for the safety of the baby. And so she was screaming um, and asking the nurses to have just she just wanted to see her. She just wanted to see her. So they allowed it. And she was allowed to hang on to, to my sister for 20 minutes. And she sobbed and, and rocked her. And um, they kept asking my mom if she was sure. And she said there was never anything she was more sure about, knowing that she couldn't raise that tiny human, um, but that it was, you know, to this day, the most painful thing that she's ever experienced in her life. And she never saw her again. And she didn't know... Um, you know, you sort of sign away your rights. And there was a lot of conversation about like, you cannot find her again. My dad um, came and picked her up uh, a couple of weeks later after she had healed. And um, she remembers so many things about the day that he picked her up that she had knitted a skirt. She told me this not very long ago. Um, and so she remembers what she was wearing and how awkward it was and how she just stepped back into that farming community um, with just the understanding that the job didn't work out and nobody asked a lot of questions. And fast forward uh, five years later, they have me. They get married. They have me. And I can't imagine now as a mom of three um, – what it must have been like. They couldn't doctor at home in our little town because the doctor would have seen the C-section scar. And um, so they had to fake that there was a problem with the pregnancy and go to the city. That's where I, you know, to the 
city next to us, which was Edmonton, uh, have me, bring me home. And um, there's so much of our baby uh, pictures now that my sister and I look so much alike that I can't imagine what it would have been like for my mom to look at my sister who looked so much like me and wonder, you know, about that. And she said, you know, in the first few years, every December, which is um, my sister's birthday, you know, wondered about, um, you know, what she would look like now and, you know, all of those things. And then they have my brother. And life goes on. And we had this family that was, um, you know, relatively lovely and stable and connected. Um, and my parents uh, never talked about her and certainly never told anybody but each other. And I, as a psychologist now, reflect on this for my mom and my dad, and I can't fucking imagine what it would have been like to hold the, the gravity, the weight of that story in this little town, having then two children, one who looked very much like your first daughter, and wondering all the time, where is she? Where did she get adopted to? Is she ever going to come through our door? Anything like that, huh? And <laughs> we grow up, mom and dad get a divorce, now, I have lots of opinions about why this happened and how this happened, and uh, the stories are, of course, theirs to tell, but it was remarkable to me that um, until we started to talk about this, mom uh, sort of had never considered that my sister might have been a part of um, the disconnect that might have happened between them. But I, I mean, I got my own theories on that that I'm sure I will share many times. But she, mom and dad called us home one weekend. I was married. I was pregnant with our first son. My brother was married, two daughters, and uh, I came home to the farm that I grew up in. My husband was away, and um, mom and I were sitting at the kitchen table, and in walks my dad. They'd been divorced for maybe 15 years, and my dad never just walked into the farmhouse before, um, but he walked in with my brother, and it was kind of fucking weird. And we all sat down at the kitchen table, and people are, you know, they're laughing and telling stories, and I was like, what the shit is going on here? Is this like an intervention or Something like it was fine. Mom brings out the lemon loaf, which is the universal sign of death. And so I'm getting concerned and everybody's got a coffee and, and I look over at my father and he starts to cry. And I was like, fuck, okay. Somebody's dying. Like, honestly. Uh, and I was so selfish in this moment as I reflect back on it. Cause I was like, I have six months until our baby that I was pregnant with is here. I wonder if dad's going to die before he gets to see my baby. Like that's, that's my only thought. Right. And then he says, we have to tell you kids something what we haven't told anybody in 40 years. Well, what the fuck? So obviously he hasn't had uh, a life-threatening illness for 40 years. Maybe I didn't think, maybe he's gay. That was my next thought. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I mean, we can certainly, this is all happening in like five seconds in my head. And he said, uh, we haven't told anybody this. And I was like, okay. And I would have never guessed if you gave me a hundred thousand tries that he was going to say, you have a sister. Because I speak to my parents, for sure my mom, every other day. And certainly my dad, after the divorce, um, at least once a week even, okay? You have a sister. And we have a, a what? And it was like a relief. Like, oh, okay, nobody's dying. Uh, nobody's gay, which, is, which would have been just absolutely fucking fine. But you have a sister. Oh, okay. And then the question was, like, do you want to know about her? And she was like, Jode. My mom, my, my dad said, Joe, she looks just like your mother and she sounds just like you. And then I was like, whoa, fuck, d pump the brakes. You fuckers have met her. What do you mean? Like you, you have, you, you, you know her. And I looked at my brother, like, do you know this shit? And he's looking at me like, no. Okay. So like prior to this, 
Like 30 seconds prior to this story, I was the only daughter and I was the oldest. Now I'm the fucking middle kid. Like, I don't feel like we should be all like, whoo, she looks just like your mother. Bullshit. And then not even time to like breathe. They say, would you like to meet her? And my brother, who's nicer to me, that's, he says, of course, guys, because my mom's bawling. My dad's fucking crying. I can't take it. There's so much emotion. Fuck. And then my brother says, yes, of course, we'd love to. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, I mean, this is, this is the summertime. This is, like, maybe next Christmas, you know, I might be ready. And my dad says, oh, great. You guys were so happy to hear that. She's in the garage. In the garage. <laughs> like a fucking puppy. Anyway, it's not exactly how it went. He said she's on the way. And my sister now tells me that she would have turned the car around if we would have said no, we weren't ready to meet her. But who the fuck does that? You just got a sister and you're like, I'm not ready. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Anyway, so in blows my sister. Now, I love her now. But here's the thing. She's five years, five years older than me and doesn't look it. And she comes in the door and she's so fucking excited because she's known about us for 43 years. And uh, I have had exactly 43 seconds. And so I was holding hands with my brother, which is fucking weird for us in our living room. And I was like, what do you say to somebody who like is your sister? Like, do you say like, hi, or like what? He's like, I don't know, Joe. It's like, I guess we just start with hello. And I was like, look at you fucking Dr. Phil. So then we come over to the thing and meet her and she's lovely. And oh my God, so we have this weird fucking family dinner and everybody frolics and, um, That was almost 13 years ago. And it has defined the course of so many things for me because um, as I back up now, when I left Viking Alberta, Canada, I knew very early because of a teacher, because of, I think, the experience of my parents' divorce that I, I really wanted to understand about relationships and systems. And I decided very early I wanted to be a psychologist. And I worked with the RCMP. And um, as a civilian member, uh, the RCMP is our Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's the national police force in our country. And I became fascinated by trauma and stories and when people don't talk about things, how it can fucking eat them from the inside out. And I thought, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to hear people's stories. I want to create a safe place and understand them. And not knowing that I had a whole chunk of my own story that I had no idea about at that point. Um, and so I got my master's and, and I did a lot of work in police psychology and my PhD. I only worked with adults. And then I did a, I came to Nova Scotia where I did my residency and I had to do a rotation with kids. And they were like, um, listen, 
we think you should do a rotation with kids. And I was not a huge fan of child psychology. Like I don't really even like kids, uh, despite the fact that I have three of my own now. Um, but I understood that we knew even less about kids and trauma than we know about adults and trauma. And so I loved this opportunity. And my first job was on a locked psychiatric inpatient unit for kids at the Alberta Children's Hospital. And we dove into some of, you know, the, the hitters, the kickers, the biters, the ones to tell you to fuck off. And again, I didn't know then how important that would be, but we asked all the time what was wrong with these kids. We never asked what happened to them. There was never a place to tell the story. And when I stayed there and I had the opportunity to be a uh, psychologist, the head psychologist on the team, the only psychologist, but I'll just call it the head psychologist on my respective team, okay? My job was to conceptualize the story, right? And to understand from the speech and OT and even psychiatry about like how this kid got to where they were and the family therapist and to be able to sort of give that story back. And um, it was probably some of the profound, most profound lessons in my whole career happened there. And I remember thinking so much about what a privilege it was to be able to step into some stories where people had been so hurt and traumatized. And when I think about where I came from, I think about how lucky I was, how blessed, how fortunate, how whatever word you want to use, to not have a massive trauma history. Because I do think, for me anyways, it has allowed me to step into other people's hardest moments with a pretty significant stable base. And when I talk about the importance of just walking people home, we all have a responsibility in this life to do that. And I think given the opportunity to be able to do this as a job every single day has been probably one of the biggest gifts in my, the, 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 the biggest gift forever. Absolutely. And I think now when I reflect on the fact that, you know, it took me a really long time, um, to find somebody that I, I wanted to marry, mostly because I didn't think for a very long time that I deserved uh, to be in a relationship. I was super, super scared after um, watching my parents' divorce. Um, I didn't trust the fact that rugs couldn't be pulled out from underneath you. Um, and so it was so much easier to focus on my career. I have 13 years post-secondary education, and it made so much more sense to pour myself into my work and to my career and to be somebody. I knew in my life that I always wanted to be a mom. And one of the relationships that I had that I almost believed was the forever one. Um, he didn't want children. And it crushed my soul because I don't think I'd ever been more in love with somebody than this human. And I think that it was the biggest reflection piece of my life that I, I know to the core of me that I, I love to watch the wonder of children. And if I was going to have an opportunity to have my own, um, I needed to know that that was a possibility. And it was an interesting conversation in my own mind about whether I would risk the sacrifice of finding this, I think, true love, um, for something that I didn't even know was possible. And, um, I mean, now knowing now what I know, uh, it was the, I think the biggest risk and, and the greatest payoff of my life. Uh, I met my personal husband when I was at, um, 
<laughs> at the Children's Hospital. Um, and he's a feedlot nutritionist, and um, which basically means he feeds cows for a living, um, which is, I always say, is obviously very exhausting and difficult, I'm sure. Um, but anyway, he's a nice guy, but he's very, very, very <laughs> different uh, than me and um, from me. Um, we have to talk about how he is the brakes and I am the gas. And the harder he pushes on the brakes, I fucking full throttle that bitch because, um, nobody puts baby in a corner, but anyway, so it's, um, very, very difficult, uh, sometimes to navigate that. But, uh, our children also teach us so much. We had Asher, um, gosh, when I was 36 and it was a beautiful, easy conception and it was a pretty beautiful pregnancy. And then I was a fucking disaster. Uh, postpartum, like you don't even know. I was concerned I was going to kill him. I was concerned I was going to drop him. Um, I will do lots of, I mean, upcoming episodes around parenting and, um, postpartum and just what it means to raise kids these days. Because I think even though I wrote a book about it, I think about this all the time, how it's a whole new fucking game and we don't have a new set of rules. Um, so Asher taught me more probably than any human. And then, um, then we got twins, which thank fuck. If I didn't feel like my body was never coming back after that first one, you're welcome. Fucking twins. Anyway, I love them. Uh, and so we got the boy girl, uh, set there spontaneous. So delightful. Uh, we had lost a baby in between the two of those, uh, pregnancies, um, which I got to say, I think about way more than I think we ever give anybody credit for. Um, so I'm going to talk about pregnancy loss and infertility at some points in our lives, uh, in this podcast life. And, um, then and only then, um, will we step into, uh, the next chapter, which is where we are now. And, um, I think I, you know, we moved back to this little town and I started a private practice and I started speaking about the hitters, the kickers, the biters, um, in the education system. And then I met Marty who, if you are in this brand for very long, if you're around us for very long, you'll know Marty is, um, she runs my whole life and we're business partners in this little company. And, uh, now we speak around the world and, this podcast is meant to be that place where we can bring some of those stories back to you. Um, and I think the people who have made me great, uh, you'll hear about a lot on here. And I also ask this question um, to many people uh, who didn't make you great. And if you stick around, you'll hear about those too, because I have a lot of people that crush my soul along the way. All of them are necessary. And perfect and beautiful and right on time. It's just really hard to see in the moments. And those are the moments that we're going to unpack around here. Because everyone comes from somewhere. Even me. And so thank you for listening to my little piece uh, of how I got here. I, I truly, to the core of me, believe um, the next chapters are going to be the best ones. So uh, I hope you're along for the ride. I'm a registered clinical psychologist here in beautiful Alberta, Canada. The content created and produced in this show is not intended as specific therapeutic advice. The intention of this podcast is to provide information, resources, some education, and hopefully a little hope. 
the Everyone Comes From Somewhere podcast by me, Dr. Jody Carrington, is produced by Brian Seaver, Taylor McGilvery, and the amazing Jeremy Saunders at Snack Labs. Our executive producer is the one and only, my Marty Pillar. Our marketing strategist is Caitlin Benito. And our PR big shooters are Des Vano and Barry Cohen. Our agent, the 007 guy, is Jeff Lonis from the Talent Bureau. And my emotional support during the taping of these credits uh, was and is and will always be my son, Asher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.